Well, good morning, everyone. If you're new with us, we're tickled you're here. Can't believe you actually found us during a pandemic. <laughs> so glad you're here and make sure you come meet us if you feel comfortable afterwards, Bonnie and I, the two teaching pastors. And uh, for the rest of you, I'm uh, tickled pink uh, that we have three congregations, an inside, an outside, and a home side. So wherever you're at this morning, we're glad that you're here. And, and, and honestly, my heart is really full this morning. I was thinking uh, full for several reasons. One, God will not waste this difficult time that our country is in. He is at work. He is not asleep. He is not unaware. He wants to use it to change his people. He will either return or this too shall pass. And hopefully if this too shall pass, if that's what happens, hopefully we are different. All of us are different in a good way, more like Christ. And So there's a lot to rejoice in, even in the midst of the chaos. Um, I'm also, my heart is full because uh, today is 34 years of marriage to Jenna. How about that? Yep. So... Uh, I'm not sure her parents would be happy with that, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, they, uh, I think they're fine now, but at first, <laughs> yeah, first it was a question mark. Why? Why? <laughs> I can't understand. No, I, uh, I thought, you know what, it's 34 years, I thought we'd go out and have a, you know, maybe, maybe have a nice meal together somewhere, maybe the chop house, 34 years, you know, and then this week happened, and uh, this week, by, by me saying that, um, I, I, just, I just went big time. I bought our anniversary present, I bought both our birthday presents coming in July, and I went ahead and made Christmas too for both of us. I dropped it all that cash on a brand new refrigerator. <laughs> yeah, our fridge went out, so I texted her from Lowe's and said, baby, happy anniversary, happy birthday, Merry Christmas. She's like, oh, well, thank you. So tonight we go to Five Guys, all right? <laughs> so anyway, turn with me, if you would, Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. It's our third week in this chapter. Luke 16 has been a doozy of a chapter. If you've been with us, if not, I'd encourage you to go back to our website and and check it out. Two weeks ago, Luke 16, 1 through 13, I unpacked for us what many scholars have said is the most difficult parable in the whole Bible about the dishonest manager. Uh, I entitled it, Why Money Matters to God. I think we could retitle it to say, Why How We Use Our Money Should Matter to God's People. And then last week, Monty unpacked uh, verses 14 through 18. And really, it was an explanation of why Jesus was telling the parable of the dishonest manager in the first place. And the answer comes in verse 14, because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were lovers of money. And Jesus was trying to point out to them and us, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be lovers of money. It's despicable to the Lord when we usurp him and worship money instead of himself. This morning we'll finish the chapter with another parable called the rich man and Lazarus. And 
Lazarus. And, and yes, it's about money and possessions, but I really believe when we get through with this, hopefully I will communicate and teach in such a way that you and I know it's about so much more than money and possessions. When I think of money, I often think you can't live without it. And most of us don't live well when we have a lot of it. I know it's true in my mind. If you saw my bank account, you would sort of laugh. You're 57 years old and that's it. And, um, and uh, but when I, from time to time, somehow something surprises us and we get a little extra money, I am so amazed at how quickly my dependence leaves the Lord and how secure I can start to feel. And I'm talking about just a few thousand dollars more. So there's a doubt, no doubt, a demonstrated over and over in human history that the test of prosperity is so much easier to pass than the test of adversity. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, or poverty. C.S. Lewis says, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent upon God. Again, Lewis, in his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, is quoting the devil speaking to one of his demons about how to take hold of a man and control him. He puts it like this. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding his place, its place in him. Victor Hugo, the French poet and novelist, just says it more bluntly. He says, adversity makes men and prosperity makes monsters. If we're honest, from our own lives and the lives of others, we know that is true. Matter of fact, Jesus spoke about money. My goodness, 16 out of Jesus' 38 parables were about money. I found out this week another stat. One out of ten verses in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about what? Money. 288 total. So I thought to myself, why would Jesus and the gospel writers do this? Why would God in his sovereignty write through, the, through his spirit, write through the pens of men? Why would he spill that kind of, that much ink on this subject of money? And I think it is because, I know it is because, how we think about money how we spend money, how we use money and deal with money or a lack of it really does affect how you and I see the bigger, the much bigger and more important, the most important issues of life. The real issues Jesus was addressing by speaking on money are namely God. Who is he? What's he like? What is the God of our lives? The kingdom of God and what kingdom are you living for and primarily the topic of salvation of heaven or hell. Money and how we view it can radically cloud or bring darkness to those most important issues of life. And when it does, we, we, we really fail to engage those issues. So Jesus knew. If we get money right, you and I have an incredible chance to get the most important things in life right. 
So this morning, Jesus really does just that. He uses this parable about money and possessions to drive home the point to his audience, the Pharisees, about who God really is, what it means to live for the kingdom of God, and about heaven and hell. And he does that all in a few verses. It's a sobering parable. The rich man and the and Lazarus. A parable of contrast and reversals. The rich man becomes poor and the poor man becomes rich. The poor man is on the outside, then the rich man is on the inside, then the poor man is on the inside, and the rich man is on the outside. The poor man with no food and a rich man with a feast. And then the poor man is at a feast and the rich man doesn't even have a drop of water. You have a poor man who seeks help and a rich man who gives him no help. Then the rich man seeks help and the poor man can't give him help. And I could go on and on. The, the nuances to this text, literally, you could preach for hours on. But in this text, at the end of the day, there are two lives, there are two destinations, there are two requests, and I think at least four warnings for you and I as believers. And so, let's read the text together if you have your Bibles. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried off by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in the like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may, he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. <clears throat> Two lives, verses 19 through 21. As a reminder, let's remember that Jesus is addressing, big picture, the fraudulent religious system of the Pharisees. They are lovers of money. 
They're self-righteous, and they justify themselves by an outward appearance to man, to please other men. They were very religious, but their hearts were far from God. They, they were fakes. And our, our America, don't think we're not capable of that. We are a country that are full of religious people. So we have two lives, though. We have the rich man they mentioned first. Tells us he's a very wealthy man who habitually and consistently wears purple exterior clothing and his interior clothing was made of fine linen. Look, this is just not him dressing up for a Sunday. This is just not putting on his Sunday best or getting ready for a special occasion. He does this every day. The color purple tells us that this, this was sort of like our brand, uh, the world number one worldwide brand in expensive clothing, Louis Vuitton. I looked up on the interweb this week. A Louis Vuitton church average, shirt averages over $1,000 a piece. This is Louis Vuitton kind of clothes. The, why I say that? The purple dye comes from shells, seashells. Every shell produces one drop of purple dye. It would take thousands of shells to create enough dye to color just one of his shirts. The fine linen in that day was made from Egyptian cotton, still the finest cotton in the world today. I call it high-dollar draws. One ounce of Egyptian cotton was equal in that day to one ounce of gold. In our text, with this rich man, there are no Walmart clothes and there are no fruit of the loom. They're at a whole nother level he is. And this rich man put himself on display daily. Every day was a party day with his daily feast, the best food the world had to offer. The Pharisees would hear this story, though, through their distorted, fraudulent, sick, religious lens that God had blessed this man and the evidence that God had blessed this man was that he was rich. The Pharisees were the first inventors of the prosperity gospel. It's not new. And here it is right before us. They believed if, if, if rich, God blessed. If you were poor, God was cursing you. You may want to write down John 9. You can go back and read it this week. In that text, there was a blind man. And the Pharisees asked Jesus, is he blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? They assumed wrongly that because this man was suffering physically that he had sinned in some way to deserve it. Their theology was twisted. <clears throat> These Pharisees loved money like the rich man. And they paraded themselves around like the rich man. And Jesus, through a parable, is pointing that out to them. And then you have the opposite of that. You have Lazarus. Ironically, his name means God helps. And it doesn't look initially in our text that God does help. But we'll see in the story, obviously, God was his helper. Totally opposite of the rich man. He's described as poor. The word is pauper. It is, it is the same word used to describe Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. There's the word, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The text tells us he was covered with sores. The Greek word is actually ulcer. He's, he's filthy. He has pus oozing out of his uh, uh, ulcers that cover his entire body. The text tells us he was laid at the gate. The word is dump. Someone in town thought this man needs help. This rich man has plenty of resources. Let's lay him outside of this gate. And this gate tells us that behind that gate was a huge estate or mansion. So he's just dumped there. And every day, every day when the rich man left his house clothed in purple and Egyptian cotton underwear, he would walk by or walk over this man. And he never once helped him. Not once. All he wanted was crumbs from the rich man's table. The Pharisees knew immediately what that meant. In those days when you would eat, you would lay on one side and you'd take the other hand and eat with your hands that had forks and spoons. They dipped the food with a piece of bread, more of a flat bread versus our loaf of bread. And they would take bread and they would wipe their hands clean at the end of a meal with the bread to get the sauces off and then go pour some water on them. And they would take these crumbs of bread and throw them on the table. And after dinner, dogs would come in and would clean the floor. Now, you, if you have a dog, you've probably done that in your own house. Anybody else? Yeah. You don't eat off the knee, put the dish in the dishwasher. It's like the pre-wash, right? I've never done that. Text tells us dogs are licking his ulcers. And these dogs, look, they weren't man's best friends. They were these mongrel scavengers who roamed the street. It's why the Jews called Gentiles what? Gentile dogs. That's where they got the picture from. And the Pharisees, again, their lens would think they could not help this man because God has cursed this man. And if they helped him, they would be intervening in a sense for, in God's purposes of discipline this man for some reason. So you have two opposite lives, which leads us to do two destinations. Because here's the deal. Both men do in our text what all men and women eventually do. The universal curse of death touches them, and they both die. Death is the great equalizer. So you have two destinies, or two destinations, verses 22 and 23. It tells us first that Lazarus, the poor man, dies. Now, hearing of the poor man's death would make the Pharisees think that God's curse on this poor man is finally over. It is complete. And what they're expecting to hear next is that at this man's death, Lazarus' death, he would be taken outside the city and would be placed in a commoner's grave and forgotten about. But instead, what they hear is this. Did you hear the text? That he wasn't buried, he was carried away by holy angels to the bosom or the side of Abraham. Folks, this is mind-blowing shock to the Pharisees. 
This literally is mind-blowing for them to process. They can't process it. How in the world could God send his holy angels to gather a poor, cursed man like Lazarus? Their, their theology, their wrong theology, is sort of melting like wax over a hot fire right before their eyes. Abraham was the father of the Jewish faith. They know, the Pharisees know that Abraham's in heaven, that Abraham is a faithful Jew, and now this poor, filthy beggar is at his side having this intimate fellowship with Abraham in heaven. Because to be at the bosom of someone is the picture, is how it described with Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper. It is that kind of intimacy. It's like being at a feast with the great hero of the Jewish faith, Abe. And that's where Lazarus is. And then you have the rich man. Where's his destination? Well, he also dies. And it tells us that he was buried with a proper burial. So they have a proper funeral for him. And we know what happens. He was a rich man. Everyone knew him. So the, the, where they had the funeral was filled with people. And they speak nicely of him. What a great man he is. You ever been to those funerals? There's a rascal lying in a casket. And he's talked about as if he is the coming of the Apostle Paul. And you're thinking, I mean, there's a lot of funerals in a town. Am I the wrong one? You ever been there? That's what happens here. But now he's in hell. Hades is a synonym for hell. And he's in torment. He's in hell and look, this is a shocker to the Pharisees. They're stunned once again. It is the opposite of what they expected. It is a reversal of everything they are expecting to happen. The rich man lifts up his eyes, the text tells us. And lo and behold, he looks far away. And who does he see? He sees Father Abraham. And by his side is this despicable man of Lazarus. The rich man, the text tells us, is fully aware of where he is. Notice here, now this text isn't a classic, classic text about the theology of hell and heaven. But notice there's no purgatory. There's no waiting place. And the word torment here is used in the plural form, which means this pain and agony is coming at him nonstop. It's not once. It's forever. It's plural. The accuser, Satan himself, is accusing him rightly, the rich man, about all that his life represented. And it's all true. Darkness, fire, weeping, gnashing of teeth. So we have two lives, the rich man and Lazarus. We have two destinations. One is in paradise and one is in hell. Both eternal and then we have two requests, 24 through 31. Notice that both of the requests come from the rich man. Here's the first one, first request. The rich man says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to give me a drop of water for I am in anguish. Now, we know the Jews called Abraham father because he was the father of their faith. So he's saying in some ways, take care of me. 
I am one of your children. There was, a, again, a mistake theologically that because you were ethnically a Jew, it was automatic that you would go to heaven. Old Testament, although the Jews were God's people, never said that. Make note here, thought it was interesting. The one with no mercy, the rich man, now wants mercy and he's asking for something that he was never once on earth willing to give himself. How ironic. John MacArthur puts it this way. I love it. He says, the rich man <clears throat> is so ingrained that he is superior to Lazarus that even in hell he thinks Lazarus should serve him. When other humans, because of race or money or looks, or anything else, think they're superior to other humans, you have closed your Bible and chose to believe a lie from the pit of hell. And a lot of our problems today come from that very lie. And we see it right here in this text. Dr. Bach, the grand expert scholar in the book of Luke, continues. He says, hell, notice here that hell is not remedial. It does not fix you. It only punishes you. Hell just continues to confirm and affirm who you really are and who you've always been. There was once no crumbs for Lazarus, and now there is no water for the rich man. Moving forward, verse 25. Abraham responds back to the rich man after the first request. And he says this pretty bluntly. During your life, you had good things, and Lazarus, you had bad things. But now things are reversed and will forever be reversed in all of eternity. You'll have torture, and Lazarus will be in unending luxury and pleasure and deep soul satisfaction. Pharisees are thinking, how could a Jew who called out to Father Abraham be in hell? They don't even know what to think. <clears throat> At this point, let me pause. Let me, let me put a parenthesis. Let me insert for us some clarity here. Because it could sound like, as we've gone through this text, that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. But look, we should know better. That's not the entirety of Scripture. It's not what the whole counsel of God says. We know that Old Testament saints... As Dr. Stanley Toussaint said from Dallas Seminary, I loved how he put it here, were saved on credit and their bills were paid at Calvary at the death and resurrection of Christ. They trusted in Christ, the Messiah that was coming. You and I trust in Christ that has come. The Old Testament saints were anticipating the death and resurrection of the Messiah, though they didn't fully understand it yet as we do. Those who go to heaven, just for clarity, are those who put their trust in Christ, in Christ, through faith, for salvation, period. So what is he saying here? What do we take away from this? This text so far is telling us that for lost people, all the good they will ever have is in this life. And then it's over. 
It's over. There's no second chance once you taste death. There's no purgatory. There's no place to pause and reconsider your life. And look, history and people we know even in our own lives is full of those kind of people. They live for the here and now, and then it's over. And for a saved person, all the bad things that are in this life, and there are many, when you die, it's all over. It's paradise. There's no pain. There's no tears, no suffering. The scriptures teach us that Jesus himself will wipe away every tear, every hurt, every pain. And in some ways, there's this eternal high in the very presence of Christ himself. It's a beautiful picture of encouragement for us as believers. I want you to think with me just a minute about this rich man. What a sad and tragic soul he was. God, through his common grace, blessed this man. He gave him good things to enjoy, and ultimately in hopes, as he does for all of us, that we would use those things for God's glory and for their enjoyment to us. But the rich man just built bigger and better barns. The rich man just acquired more and more stuff, and everything was about him. Self-indulgence, in some ways, was his middle name, rich, self-indulgent man on his tombstone. It, it is the highest level that gives us evidence of that is his lack of generosity. <laughs> I mean, he showed who he was. Verse 26 tells us there was a great chasm so that the rich man did not provide for the could not provide did not provide for the poor man the poor man now could not provide for the rich man now that would never change so that's request number 1 request number 2 starts in verse 27 it says then please send Lazarus to my father's house to warn my five brothers so you got to give him a little heads up he's aware he knows the fix is in he knows his uh, destiny is set. He's, he's in eternal torment in hell for the rest of his life. So he has some kind of compassion for his brothers. Because he knows they think when they die, they're going to be in heaven. But really they're not. They're going to be in hell with him. So he wants to send a warning shot back so they won't have to go through this anguish and torture for all of eternity. But notice... Love, Dr. Bach pointed this out. Notice, he still has contempt and this air of superiority toward Lazarus. He actually says, tell the servant, the beggar, Lazarus, to go tell him what is really going on. Even in hell, hell is not remedial, it doesn't fix us. As uh, MacArthur said, he's still telling Lazarus what to do. He, he still thinks he, like, Lazarus, go do this. Tell Lazarus to do this. He's just a servant. He's a despicable beggar. The response is in verse 29. Abraham says, your brothers then should listen to Moses and the prophets. The Old Testament scriptures that they are fully aware of 
the Old Testament scriptures that they grew up with as a Jew. It will tell them exactly what they need to know. Abraham said, you and your brothers could have both gone to the pages of the Old Testament and learned all you need to about your own sinfulness, about God, about his kingdom, about salvation through the coming Messiah, about forgiveness. Remember, rich man, remember the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? Remember the substitution? That was a picture of the Messiah to come. You failed to understand about the way God deals with sin, about the Messiah in Genesis 3 who crushes the head of Satan and establishes the eternal throne through King David. This is, this is what the Jews knew and who fulfilled every promise from the prophets. If you and your brothers would have only believed the scriptures, is what Abraham is saying, you would have known. Now, as the Pharisees listen to this, here's what you and I need to get. They knew, they knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was shining a flashlight, pointing straight at their foreheads, telling them, you are the brothers. You're the five brothers. And you should have known. Jesus is speaking directly to them with that illustration. Here's what's amazing, amazing, is the arrogance. I'll say it again for the third time. Hell is not remedial. <laughs> it doesn't change us. Verse 30, he actually has the arrogance to argue with Abraham. He says, if someone, Abraham, let me push back on you there. Here's what I know, because you know, I've always always known what's best. I'm the rich man. I'm the powerful man. He says, if someone, i.e. Lazarus, who my brothers knew, they knew him was a, when he was a despicable, crippled beggar laying there with sores, oozing with pus. They saw him for years. If they actually saw him now without all that, and that he actually came back from the dead, they would, if they saw him alive, they would believe and not end up here where I'm at. In verse 31, <clears throat> Abraham responds, and he says, nope. He says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe a man who rises from the dead. Thought about that this week. There may be no truer statement in all of Scripture. Because here's the deal. Jesus did rise from the dead. Did the Pharisees believe him? Nope. Nor did they believe Moses and the prophets. And here's what else we know. Jesus also raised a man from the dead, another Lazarus, in John chapter 11. And instead of believing that Jesus was the Messiah... Because they knew Lazarus. The town knew Lazarus. And they knew Lazarus was dead. And had been dead for three days. People attended his, his funeral. 
And all of a sudden he was alive. So the Pharisees knew he did that because at that point, here's what John 11 tells us. Go read that one this week. At that point, the crowd swarmed Jesus. <laughs> they grew. They, they said, man, this guy's the Messiah. And at that point, the Pharisees say this. We're going to kill this Jesus, and we're going to kill Lazarus too. Him raising Lazarus from the dead didn't motivate them to believe Jesus. It motivated them to kill him and get rid of him. I always thought in that if, if someone came to Lazarus after he'd been raised from the dead said, hey, the Pharisees are going to kill you, Lazarus would be like, well, that's no problem. I have been dead once, right? Jesus raising another Lazarus from the dead. He already did it once, would not make them believe. There's our story. There's our parable. Two lives, two destinations, and two requests. And here's four warnings for us. I think this text has so many we can't count, but I want to give us four. I want to pull out four for us this morning as we wrap up. The first one comes from the context of the verses prior to our text, Luke 16, 14. The Pharisees, it says, were again lovers of money and they ridiculed Jesus or scoffed at Jesus or the, the Greek word, the picture there is they sniffed their nose at him. Jesus says, tells the parable and they go, do that to your wife this next week, guys. See how it goes. Jesus told them, those who love money more than me, those who make money their God, are, an, are stench to God. It is rebellion against God. That's what he tells them in those verses. And here's how I put it. Being rich is not bad. Don't be guilty. Fake guilt because you're rich. God gave it to you. He entrusted it to you. Money is neutral. It's not good or bad. It's the love of it. Being rich is not bad, but here's the warning. Being rich can make you very, very bad. Dr. Daryl Bach again puts it this way. He says, the rich man is not condemned in this text because he is rich, but because he slipped into the coma of callousness that wealth produces. He became consumed with his own joy, leisure, and celebration, and failed to respond to the suffering and need of others around him with great compassion and mercy. In America... The vast majority of us, compared to the world, are rich. Is your richness making you bad in terms of your own dependency and generosity? Secondly, it's the first cousin of the first warning, but the second warning is selfishness or self-indulgence. It's a reiteration, again, of our whole 18 verses before that where we learn when I unpack the first parable that our money and our stuff is not our money and stuff. It's God's. He distributes it to us to use for his glory. And look, we need to understand. You say, well, I'm not selfish. You are deluding yourself. Being selfish and self-indulgent is as natural for us as people 
as breathing. And yet God continually asks his people to self-examine themselves, to, to, to give their lives away, to be generous, to think eternally, to, to live for the hereafter instead of the hearing now, to, to live with open hands and open lives, to in some ways, Jeff, I can't help anyone, no, but you can do for one what you wish you could do for many. The goal of the rich man was to live the good life. And he made money and stuff. He was comfortable. And he himself was his priority. That's really the priority of the world. 1 John 2.15 tells us, love not the world. The rich man, throughout his life, he cared only for himself. It's a warning to us to fight that, to, to in some ways swim upstream against the current and the flow of the world around us. And thirdly, I don't know how to put this one, it's just it's not slick, but I think there's a warning here for you and I as believers. You better get your nose and your eyes and your mind and your heart in the book. You can't avoid that application here. God's word is the source of truth about God, the kingdom of God, and yes, heaven and hell. And for the most part, what has been and is going on in our world is because we have not lived and been taught the whole counsel of God. When there was a question about this, Abraham, what did he do? He sent the rich man back to the book. For the majority of Christians in America, the only time this book is open is on a Sunday morning when they're reading along. It's a travesty. The warning here is you better get in the book. Here's my story. Came to Christ in October. Guy named Joe Schrader. I still talk to Joe. Talked to him a couple weeks ago. If you've been here a while, you heard his name. He's he's a modern day saint to be disciple me for four years. Okay, was rough as a cop. Always upset about something. Always crying or mad or questions. Just wearing him out with questions. And every time I went to him as a brand new believer, from October to July, here's what he did. He'd take his Bible, and I'd be all frustrated and big, and he'd take his Bible and open it up and say, Jeff, turn with me to this. He'd read the scriptures with me. That July, I just had surgery on my knee. It was as big as my head, and I got a big head. My season was once again in question because of an injury. I was discouraged. I was living alone, actually in his house that summer where he was at Dallas Seminary, and I was just all tore all to pieces, and I pick up the phone with a cord to call him. And as I picked it up, is that the Spirit of God said, what are you going to call Joe for? You know what he's going to tell you. He's going to tell you to open your Bible. I hung that phone down, and I opened my Bible. Joe had been teaching me, you better be a man of the book. It's got all the answers, folks. Because you and I are just as likely to twist the scriptures 
and say really stupid stuff about God and his kingdom and heaven and hell and all the things that really matter, just like the Pharisees are. I grew up in a home like that. I grew up in a church like that. The things I heard, God helps those who help themselves and a thousand other things from my great theologian father, Jack Patton. You and I are not beyond that. And then lastly, because here's what, before I go there, Jesus reaffirms the superiority of Scripture here. Lastly, there's a warning. Boy, this is so relevant for today. I don't know what else could be more relevant. You can't be obedient to God without compassion and grace and mercy to people. Look, I have an African-American daughter. And it breaks my heart, not only with the George Floyd thing, but it breaks my heart in the response to it and the division in our world. Thank God this community has been incredible to her. But the Pharisees' explanation of a sinful world did not square up with God's. They feared that compassion for the hurting, compassion for, for this man who was in sin would some way disrupt, disrupt God's plans for him. God is saying, obedience to me includes all the time grace and compassion and mercy in spite of the person. Because that's exactly what he's done for us. In spite of us, he has been so kind and so gracious and so compassionate and so patient and so long-suffering. That's the gospel. And when we get that, we're able to give it away even when that person doesn't deserve it. It's a game changer when it comes to relational incarnation. When Jesus stood outside in Jerusalem and he saw Jerusalem in chaos, much like we see our world today, what was his response? You remember? Somebody say it. He wept. There's a lot here this morning. Ask yourself the question, so what? A lot of application. We need to be a people who can look at a text like this and see ourselves in it. See ourselves, where we need to grow, where we need to change, how we've, how we've bought into fake theology and the world around us and where our hearts are, what we care about. Take a minute to ask the question, so what?
Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning as believers. Our hearts are heavy in some ways because of what's going on in the world for many reasons. I pray, though, Lord, you would do a sweet work in us, that you would turn your spirit upon each of our hearts, and our hearts would be heavy about toward ourselves about things we believe that aren't true actions we've taken that lack mercy and grace and compassion then I pray your spirit would help us navigate these days with great joy in spite of the circumstances that you love us shed your blood for us we know you. We are thankful that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. These are opportunities for that opportunities for change. Where there's no challenge, there's no change. May you use this season to change us individually as a church. That we're more in line with your scriptures versus what we grew up with or, or what's in the what we hear on the news or some kind of fleshly response. I do pray that for us. Lord, we love you. We're grateful that you are our anchor in the storm. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.